You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, his dark materials, episode 11, The Subtle Knife, chapters 5 and 6, which are airmail paper and lighted flyers. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit, or maybe as Arithmetric on Twitter. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me as Lies and Arbor on the internet, Twitter, Tumblr, liesandarborgold.com. And I feel like this should be three chapters. I want to say that up top. You told me that ahead of time, and then I looked and I was like, this is dumb. This should have been three chapters. This should have been four <laughs> chapters. Holy Actually, crap. Actually, yeah. You're right. Lighted Flyers is like, Lee goes on 80 journeys- and then you get to the witches. <sighs> and they go on, like, 40 journeys, but still a lot. Yeah. 80 to 40. I guess the bigger problem is we have a journey after Chapter 6 because we go into our discussion. So the journey's never ending for us, Eliana. It's never ending. Our book spoilers after section will be at the very end. Stay tuned if you don't want to know what happens in the rest of the books uh, in the Amber Spyglass then tune out then. Yes, because the way that we have set up our episodes is, for those of you who are reading this series the first time, which are quite a few of you, we go over things going on in these chapters, some of our thoughts up top. Then we have a discussion, as Chloe said, that covers material from all three of the books. Um, You know, the rest of what happens in The Subtle Knife and The Amber Spyglass. Then uh, there are times when we'll have a dustier discussion where, you know, I have finally finished reading La Belle Sauvage. I have not yet gotten to the Secret Commonwealth. Sorry, everyone. I will mm. be working on that. You know, we maybe this is the time. Maybe, you know, I think deadlines work for me. If we want to pick a How date. How about by the time we are out of this global pandemic and crisis, you will have read the Secret Commonwealth. That is my deadline. So you mean like by December? You mean, like, by ten years from now? I was like, my god, how optimistic are we being, Chloe? How pessimistic. About you finishing a book? Not so optimistic, Eliana. I know, right? Um, You don't have the best track record. You do finish them, but... Yeah. But, anyway, so let's let's pick something a little more uh, concrete. Who knows how long we're going to be in... here? Yeah, at home. Quarantine. (laughs) So... Suffering. Yeah. Honestly, my life is completely unchanged besides I don't I have to go to the factory. I was like, Thank I don't fuck. know. This is, as as time goes on, people are like, oh, Missy Outdoors. I'm like, do I? I don't know about that. Is this my natural yeah. state? Is this who I'm meant to be? I'm pretty productive. I, I There's like a whole hour I'm not driving. And that mm. hour is like, I make coffee. I start my work earlier. I get shit done. I don't know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying work from home for me works. I know it doesn't work for everybody. Obviously, a lot of service workers, people that are on the front line are uh, Mm -hmm. really, really doing their duty, man. And I don't miss retail right now at all. Uh, I know we have a friend, Micah, who does retail and I don't miss it. Horror stories. (sighs) We'll pick a date at some point, though, to finish uh, The Secret Commonwealth. But anyway... That gets covered in the dusty discussion, but, you know, we're going to play it by ear, see what we got this episode. 
Yeah, and you know, last month, if you guys are into our Patreon or on our public feed, you might have heard our Secret Commonwealth discussion that we did. Eliana was not with us for that, obviously, since she's not quite caught up yet. But we did have Faye from Her Dark Materials and Amy and Ian from Dark Material Podcast. Uh, They came on and we talked everything about the second Book of Dust really fun and this month you guys we're not sure uh if you're following us over at patreon.com slash girls gone canon you'll get some updates on patreon episodes like this this month we are doing in a song of ice and fire patreon but with everything happening right now with the global pandemic uh i know it's kind of crazy and we want you to know if you guys can't afford to be a patron that is absolutely fine we are so comforted by your listening to us, your hanging out with us, your awesome emails, your chatter. Uh, that is what we like, and we are excited to keep bringing you content while we have hopefully a little downtime in the future. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So please do not feel obligated. Uh, we appreciate it. And again, like Chloe said, uh, the kind words and support that we get from people is pretty great and awesome. And I don't know. It makes it makes it feel worth it. it. Makes you feel appreciated. We we do have a couple of emails, tweets of note that we are going to get to again at some point. But yeah, we're going to keep this episode since it should be three chapters. <sighs> Philip. Um, yeah. The only, whenever I'm mad, I'm just like Philip. The only mail we got this episode is mail from John Perry. Yes. Uh, you just got a letter. You just got a letter. That was you got mail. A poem from the uh, what the nineties, Blues Clues. <laughs> oh, uh, here's uh, the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wheel mail. Airmail paper. <laughs> Chapter five. Airmail paper. Lyra surprises Will. She's sitting on the bench next to him and tells him about Mary Malone. He was deep in thought on the bench. While two police officers were shredding toward them, which pulls him out of his thought. Yikes. Yeah. Lyra bounces to her feet and she asks them, like, can they direct her to the museum? Because she and her brother were supposed to meet their parents and they're lost. And Will shrugs, like, as if to agree. Um, It's kind of like a pretty shitty move on Lyra's part because she's trying to make a point here. It kind of works because, like, the female officer is like, okay, which museum? Lyra, uh tells her and they sort out the directions then they quote-unquote leave to the museum and the officers like lose interest and Lyra's all like see I was right I saved us and Will's like pretty furious because he's like stop attracting attention to us yeah they're really passionately arguing about it married already in super subdued married teenagers this is great <laughs> arguing about it in subdued voices he's like why did you do this? She's like, I'm the best liar ever. He's like, you're putting us into danger, Lyra. And she thinks no one should speak to her like this. She was an aristocrat. She was Lyra. So Lyra's really falling back here on that Asriel heritage, right? In the beginning of this. Uh, I feel like between this and Pan later in the chapter turning into a leopard, she consistently uses that Asriel's daughter fallback for her identity because she's just so lost in this book, right? She's trying to understand who the fuck she is after Roger's death and after Will arrived, but also check your privilege, Lyra. Like, you're basically an orphan too. Settle down. Yeah, absolutely. And she's just... It's so funny 
but jarring at the same time. This line where she's like, she was an aristocrat. She was Lyra. It's like, okay, chill out. And like, I guess I was that dramatic. I mean, but at the same time, like she thinks she knows how everything's supposed to work in this world. Right. Mm. And she's very sure right now of what she thinks things are supposed to be like. And it's like, Lyra, maybe you need to sit back when it comes to, to what you think is right. Because, as you're going to remind us in a moment, you literally got your best friend killed. Um, <laughs> not literally. It wasn't really her fault. You know, like, it was Asriel's fault. I'm yeah. exaggerating. But anyways, Will's like, whatever, I've got my own things to do, and I'm trying to help her instead. And Lyra's like, no, you did it for yourself. You did it to find out about your father, not for me. And then Will's like, whoa. How do you know about that? <laughs> And she's like, I asked the alethiometer about him, and then she shows him, and then he's like, all right, fine, 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 stop, 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 I don't like this. It gives me the heebie-jeebies. He doesn't say it, but you can tell that that's what he's thinking. When she's all like, oh, I know that your mom's sick. Oh, she's also safe. You took these letters and ran, and you murdered a thief, and oh. <laughs> he's looking for his father, and was like, shut up. Never look at my browser history ever again. Control shift delete. No, yeah, yeah. Wait, no, no, no. <laughs> Control. I do command shift n. It's all about incognito. I can't believe you just outed yourself as a Mac user. I know when to stop asking. She said. See, the alethiometer is like a person almost. I sort of know when it's going to be cross or when there's things it doesn't want me to know. I kind of feel it, but when you come out of nowhere yesterday, I had to ask it who you were, or I might not have been safe. I had to, and it said, she lowered her voice even more, it said you was a murderer, (laughs) and I thought, good, that's all right, he's someone I can trust, but I didn't ask more than that till just now, and if you don't want me to ask anymore, I promise I won't, this ain't like a private peep show, if I'd done nothing but spy on people, it'd stop working. I know that as well as I know my own Oxford. Thank you, Academy Award. Truly, I, I like how Will doesn't ask her, like, wait, hold on. I told you I was a murderer. And you were <laughs> no like... No questions. Glossed over. Yeah, you were like, chill. Amazing. Love it. Alright. Um, and I like how Lyra's all like, private peep show. <laughs> right, like, like she knows what that means. <laughs> okay, Lyra. I know, you're right. She probably doesn't know what that means. Uh, she probably thinks of what she did at Jordan College at the start of the Golden Compass was a private peep show. <laughs> I mean, well, okay, technically, but... She thinks that's what that was. Will asks uh, Lyra if she knew whether his father was dead or alive, and she's like, I didn't ask that. So then they sit awkwardly at this point. Yeah, that's like the one thing she did not think to ask you. He's like, oh, so you know I'm a murderer, but you don't know about my fucking dad and whether he's alive or not. Like, the alethiometer did volunteer that. Yeah, and Lyra was like, mm, doesn't seem important at the time. Yeah, murderer, <laughs> all I needed to know, check. Yeah, Will says they are just going to have to trust each other at this point, and Lyra repeats her trust for him. Uh there's this great line, it actually reminds me of season one of His Dark Materials, the BBC HBO TV show production, where 
Lyra wasn't usually so perceptive, but something in this manner made her think. He's afraid, but he's mastering his fear, like Yorick Burnison said we had to do, like I did by the fish house at the frozen lake. And I just love that memory of that mm. moment. Uh, I like how they captured it visually in the show, and I think it's a great thought here that she always does seem to relate Yorick to Will, and you and I have made jokes about, you know, the, the fur-filled tendencies of that feeling of like oh Lyra's in love with Yorick Burnison but I mean it's a very strong campaign she's never had a real father figure someone that was like a real dad and Yorick's kind of like that in a way so's Lee so Serafina they're all her dad yeah look at her and she has her biological dad who's kind of sucks <laughs> yeah we don't have to talk about him we don't <laughs> let me have this line of Lyra saying, and Will, she added, I won't give you away. Not to anyone, I promise. Good. I'd That's done good. that before. I betrayed someone and it was the worst thing I ever did. I thought I was saving his life, actually. Only I was taking him to the most dangerous place there could be. I hated myself for that, for being so stupid. So I'll try very hard not to be careless or forget and betray you. Aw, I'll try very hard not to be careless or forget or betray you. I'm sad. I love them. I love these kids. They're just real pure, man. They're good kids. Um, Yeah. They can't pass through the window in broad daylight and traffic, so now they have to find something to do. Lyra keeps complaining she's hungry, Will's tired, and then it hits. Will's like, I'll take you to the movies, to the cinema. And Lyra's like, I don't know what that is. They walk 10 minutes, Will gets some popcorn, hot dogs, and Coca-Cola, and they go inside as the film starts. Lyra is, of course, entranced. She's delighted. She keeps making noises, and, like, Will's thinking, like, thank God everybody is, like, eating noisily and they don't hear her, because she's just so excited about it. By the end, she does not want to leave. She's like, this was the best thing I've ever seen. Your world has something so much cooler than mine, finally. Hold on, you left out, not only does Lyra say that movies are super great and better than things in her world she also says that hamburgers hamburgers are pretty dope yeah also like walking while eating food she's like this is just a marvel it is a marvel (laughs) yeah she's like i don't understand i i don't think she approves she's not about that life it's kind of like how book lyra is all about like wearing skirts how like she's like pants that's inappropriate (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm not, she's like I'm not about that life <laughs> it's still totally light out Will asks if she wants to see another movie and he takes her down the street to another movie when it's over it's close to 11pm and Lyra is hungry again okay two thoughts first of all is it kind of like a date Yep. second of all you can tell that Will is a good boy because he actually bothered to like go and find another cinema and like actually pay to go to the movie instead of just sneaking into another showing in the same theater. Yeah. And uh for what it's worth, like he did sleep through the whole date. Like he totally just like naps <laughs> during the whole thing. But it's Which is sweet. a mood. Yeah. It's still like also it's sad because this is I mean, you think of, like, there's totally TV movie style crap, but it, it it exists as a trope in literature and in media as a reason of kids, like, hiding out in cinemas and yeah. kids, you know, skipping school, troubled children on the run, you know, doing stuff. Um, it very much fills that, like, lifetime home movie kind of crap of that here. 
those are the places to hide out in, you know, big dark room. No one's going to find Will there. No big pale blonde guy. That's true. It is a trope. But again, they find another hamburger cart. They eat and they walk. And Lyra's all about like, you know what? Tomorrow, I'm going to go see Mary Malone again and work on the Shadows engine again. I bet I could help her. I could probably get the scholars to give her the money she wants, too. You know how my father did it? Lord Asriel, he played a trick on them. Hmm. Lyra continues to tell Will about the Grumman Stanislaus trick that Asriel pulled. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. They stroll up Banbury Road. Lyra tells him all of it, not just the head, the journey from Mrs. Coulter's to Roger's death over on Svalbard, and Will is pretty sympathetic toward her. He listens quietly to her balloon voyage full of bears and witches, and they come to the ring road with hornbeam trees once more. Well, I thought I just want to double back that Lyra's idea for Mary Malone to get funding is to pull a dead head. Like, does that work? I know a couple of you work in universities who listen to this. Please tell us, um, you know, if you ever take this strategy to try and get more funding for your research project, please let us know how that goes for you. Coming back to this, you know, from what we can tell the summary of what Lyra tells Will, like, she's really keeping her promise to him here, right? It sounds like she's actually sticking to the truth, unlike how we would see Lyra recant, like, her story to people all the time in book one. She would always, like, embellish it greatly, right? She's probably still embellishing a little bit here and there when she's telling Will, because, I mean, you can only resist so much. But, like, she was really into giving these very fantastical stories about her life and adventure in book one. These are big, vulnerable nuggets that she's offering up to Will right now. You know, I mean, she willingly just... Willing. Uh-huh. Oh. She willingly just told him about Roger, right? And then she decided, you know what? I'm feeling kind of vulnerable and talky, Will. I'm feeling chatty. We're going to talk about all of it. Um, and the fact that Pullman writes it as she told him, and he doesn't tell us exactly what else she told him. He just says that she told him all of it. That, I think, is what whispers volumes, because if it was some big production, a Lyra production, we would have known. Yeah. She would have been like, and there were swords. (laughs) And horses. (laughs) Big mood. Big mood. Pretty much. Right now, there's no traffic, so they finally lurch through the window, appearing under palm trees against the sea. Will feels relief, Lyra yawns, things are peaceful, but not for long because suddenly they hear screaming beyond the cafe. Lyra actually like grabs Will and she's like, oh god. Uh, she doesn't say oh god in, in her head. You know, we <laughs> that's what I would be thinking. Um, that The text doesn't tell us that happens either. Anyways, they run to the square near the stone tower. They see 20 good men. Oh my god. There's children. There's 20 children or so in a semicircle. There's sticks in hands throwing rocks at something that seems to be trapped. No, this is not Animal Crossing, but God, does it really feel like it right now. Whose island are we on? (laughs) Wait, are you guys throwing, are you throwing things at people when you play Animal Crossing? I mean, I hit you with an axe the other day when I was on your island. Oh, I missed that. I was just like, I have a picture of it. I we had axes in our hands at the same time. Oh yeah, but we did. I swung at you. Oh, I don't remember you swinging at me. It's there. Um, Lyra realizes that this is not a human whale. Will runs into the group. He pulls them back. He pulls a specific boy back that he like flings aside and holds onto. And the group of kids shrink back from this older boy. 
And they are, of course, led by Angelica and her brother, the Angelica younger brother. Angelica Pickles. <laughs> Stupid babies. <laughs> That's uh, actually her. <laughs> the children are attacking a tabby cat, one that looks quite like Moxie, our savior, uh, the one that Will saw in Sunderland Avenue that brought him into this world. It is that cat that went through the window and immediately, because Will is a very good boy, he flings that kid aside and he kneels to the cat and takes her into his arms. And we get this line, Lyra thought for a crazy second that his demon had appeared at last. Aww. He saves the cat. Will's a good boy. He's the best boy. Ugh. He demands to know why they're hurting the cat. And they don't answer for a moment. But then Angelica finally is like total leader. I don't think that you know shit about cats or about specters or about Chitagaze, and you're not like us, Will. And Will and Lyra probably somewhere internally. Yes, we told you all of this That's very the explicitly. Point. We said we are not from here. We like they didn't even try to hide that. And <laughs> again, there's like super super hardcore. I feel Lord of the Flies vibes here again with the children becoming much more violent. Showing how they're not innocent despite, you know, adults thinking, like, I don't know, maybe the Spectres aren't coming for the children because of their innocence. And that's what protects them. It's like, "Mm, I don't think so. It it seems like there's something else going on here. Everyone is afraid of the cat. So while the boy that Will knocked aside is glaring at him like he'd beat his ass, which he wouldn't. (laughs) Will's a murderer. Um, The cat is very scary to him. So he stays back and he asks, so where did you guys come from? And Will's like, I don't have to answer that question. I don't answer to you. I don't answer to fucking anyone. Uh, He says that if the cat is bad luck to them, then it'll be good luck to Lyra and Will. Take that. And the cat's coming with us now. Yeah. And Will thinks for just a moment that the kid's hatred might conquer their fear and he's ready to fight them. But a low, thunderous growl comes from behind the children, and there Lyra stands with a great roaring leopard at her side. She's like, I got a big cat! <laughs> Mine's bigger than yours! Um, <laughs> I'm an aristocrat. <laughs> I'm an aristocrat! The, the aristocrats! Oh my god. Uh-huh. So, there's something that's so fascinating structurally that Philip Pullman is trying to pull off, and I won't spoil anything for the discussion, but these two chapters totally feel like three, but it's okay, because they're blended together seamlessly. I forgive him. Uh, Assuming we're all caught up on both chapters, we're opening in chapter five with Angelica and her brother and this tribe of sad, scared, lonely, lost orphans hurting this cat that they're so afraid of. All the while, Chittagaze has this super lonely echo of where are all the adults? Of course, overshadowing all of this is a young man with curly hair, which we'll talk about later in this episode here. Halfway through chapter 6, Serafina learns what specters are and sees them in action. The specters are what has created these orphans in Chittagaze, and they're reminiscent of the vapors that we spoke about from William Blake's works in Little Boy Lost and Found. The sad vapors. So sad vapors. And of course, Joaquin will tell us in the next chapter why the Spectres were created or how he thinks, basically from thievery and war and from tearing worlds apart, which is what Lee is simultaneously learning these effects of in the same chapter. And then, of course, we're going to end on this uprising of Lord Asriel's glorious kingdom, the great metallic war machine, glowing angels about dark mountains running on the very life force of these worlds. 
it's all basically a metaphor for like war and famine and suffering and shit, but it's just really, really well done. That's yeah. my TED talk, you know? Ugh. Absolutely. The children immediately run away from Panalaman's new leopard form, and the square, <laughs> the square is empty. They're about to leave, but Lyra, for one moment, looks up at the tower, and she sees someone looking back at her. Not a child, but a young man, curly-haired, the same one we just spoke about. Gasp. Later, they return to the flat above the cafe, giving that cat a can of condensed milk that they find while it tends to its wounds. And Pan tries to be like, hmm, but what if I, too, were a cat just like you? And at first the cat's like, oh, how interesting. Then it's like, oh, no, this is not interesting. Um, as soon as it realizes that Pan is not a threat and, like, maybe not really a cat. But Will is very intent on tending to this cat. Lyra watches interestedly as though she'd never really been close to animals. Aside from, you know, bears. <laughs> She's all like, this is weird that people like keep cats as pets here. Cats are, we only have them because they get rid of pests. They just happen to hang around the college. Will thinks that the cat's tail is broken and puts honey on her torn ear. He's all like, it's an antiseptic. Lyra can't believe the way that the children are acting. She says she's never seen kids act that way. And Will darkly says he has, which I think is quite obviously tied into the next chapter when we see the children and when we see the parents with the specters. Uh, but it's also tied into Will and the, his relationship with his father with this chapter ending with the letters, right? And of course, that relationship with Elaine, his mother, written throughout those letters and in his chapters I think we saw a little bit of this hinted at even in the show, but uh, Elaine showing up at his school, for instance, the idea of unbid and the cruelty of children in return for it. Will understands that pain probably more than anything. Um, seeing these kids act like this for him, it, it's just normal. You know, he says, oh, this is just how kids can be, Lyra. Absolutely. And it kind of proves his point from earlier in the chapter. He's like, sometimes the best way is to not draw attention to yourself, but just to go about unseen in the way that Will does it. Yeah, like this is why. Yeah, he's seen what bringing attention and standing out can do. Lyra, though, goes to sleep at some point. What? What? Lyra goes to sleep? Lyra? Lyra? Lyra! <laughs> Oh. We also get a bonus, though, of, as you'll remember from earlier in this chapter, Will. Will sleeping quite a bit. Aww. A lot of sleeping. <laughs> the cat curls up to sleep a little bit later, and Will decides to get up, drink a cup of coffee. He finally decides to read through his father's letters. They're few. They're written on airmail paper, chapter title, in mm -hmm. black ink. You know, it's quite remarkable like that Will has a caffeine dependency at this young age. Well, I'm sure there's analysis we could do on that. <laughs> That's true. Um, so, to describe these letters first, so we have these very marks were made by the hand of the man he wanted so much to find. He moved his fingers over and over them and pressed them to his face, trying to get closer to the essence of his father. Then he started to read. So our first letter, we have like three letters here. The first one is from Fairbanks, Alaska. Wednesday, 19 June, 1985. Yeah, so this letter is from John to Elaine. John Perry, his name is. And he says that he is, and this is what 
this is from when he's abroad, of course, traveling. And he has a guy he's working with named Nelson that he thinks is a total dimwit. And he's chit-chatting about going into a bar with people and asking about the anomaly. So the anomaly is something being mentioned in these letters as a very celestial experience. Maybe, perhaps, you could liken it to the sky opening up and seeing a city and, like, a bunch of the aurora in it. You know, the anomaly. Uh <laughs> <laughs> he's asking someone in a dingy bar about the anomaly and says, he wouldn't talk there, took me back to his apartment. With the help of a bottle of Jack Daniels, he talked for a long time, hadn't seen it himself, but he'd met an Eskimo who had, and this chap said it was a doorway into the spirit world. They'd known about it for centuries. Part of the initiation of a medicine man involved going through and bringing back a trophy of some kind, though some never came back. Uh, he then goes on to talk about some very specific coordinates, very specific mappings, and about some Arctic legends and archaeologists. He's traveling in a balloon with this dimwit named Nelson he keeps talking about. And then he says, none of these people have ever heard of the anomaly, and believe me, I'm going to keep it like that. My fondest love to you both, Johnny. So that's the first letter. It's interesting he calls himself Johnny. Yeah, right? I didn't take him for a Johnny. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, ew, I don't like that. John Perry. <laughs> Never took him for that. So then the next letter is from Umiet, Alaska. And this one is now dated Saturday, 22 June 1985. So a few days later. And every time he, all, he actually calls Elaine my darling or darling. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Yeah, and this time he's like, never mind, Nelson's legit. Uh, I actually secretly believe that he's looking for the same thing that I am. And then Nelson and I are super getting along. And I tried to, like, you know, feel him out by dropping a couple of different, like, hints about the anomaly. But then I buried it with a lot of other things that I found basically probably from tabloids. Who knows? Or um, just a bunch of other myths and legends. And now he's like, I don't know. Do I tell him? Do I not? Gotta figure out Nelson. Yeah, I love that by the end of this letter, he explains that he was all like, here's a conspiracy theory. There's no way this is true. You can't believe that. And then he's like, so what about the Eskimo legend of a doorway into a spirit world? And then that's when the beautiful suspicion creeps in and it turns out Nelson is looking for the same thing. And it's very obvious. And he says to Elaine at the end, gotta work out what his game is. Fondest love to both, Johnny. And then you get one more, two days later, sent from Colville Bar, Alaska. Uh, this is Monday, 24th of June, 1985. And he is getting a little more heat from the physicist Nelson. He is pretending to be totally bluffing Major Perry's stout fellow in a crisis. But then he realizes this guy is funded by the military. Mm -hmm. The third letter's the charm, man. Uh, he thinks, I shall stick to my plan, take the archaeologists to their spot, go off by myself for a few days to look for the anomaly. If I bump into Nelson wandering around on Lookout Ridge, I'll play it by ear. Uh, he goes on and he talks about the friend of Jake Peterson, the Eskimo that he keeps referring to, that he went to go find and he chatted with and he describes to John Perry about the window. It's like a gap in the air, a sort of window. You look through it and you see another world. But it's not easy to find because that part of the other world looks just like this. Rocks and moss and so forth. 
He gives another couple different coordinates and then later says, Wish me luck, my darling. I'll bring you back a trophy from the spirit world. I love you forever. Kiss the boy for me, Johnny. Yeah. So there's like a lot in this letter, right? Like he's just giving now more specific coordinates to where this window is. Something that I thought think is interesting that I thought about as the show is adapting it. You know, these are taking place in 1985. John Perry's talking about, like, the Soviets looking for the same window and it being, like, a defense thing. Mm-hmm. I wonder how they're going to, like, play that off in the show. Like, they, they could still kind of do the same thing, but it's so obviously, like, a sort of Cold War rush yeah. in that moment. So, it's just interesting tidbit. Yeah, especially when you get into, like, Nelson obviously working for the government as he learns, you know? Yeah. And I mean... So this John Perry stuff is a total, I mean, we get a lot of John Perry info dump this next chapter, obviously. Uh, It's like almost like 70% about him. But to recap, John Perry was traveling on an expedition, taking advice on shamanism from a man and an Inuit, searching the windows between worlds, hoping to walk the spirit world and bring his wife a trophy home from it. And also there's a man funded by the government on the same trip with him who's suspicious that John Perry knows what he knows. This can't mean anything for the story moving forward, right? Absolutely not. Why would it? There's no connection to be made. There's nothing. Why would anyone be investigating this? Hmm. Hmm. But okay. All right. So it it does make me think like I had before. I hadn't really thought about these letters that much. And I guess I didn't read them very well back then. Like even this most previous reread until now. But I was always like, why do they want the letters so bad? Why do they give so much of a shit? But I'm like, oh, it's because John Perry literally put very, 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 very specific coordinates in to that a window. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, now I get it. No wonder. All right, I see, I see. And like, I also just want to say, quick side note, he says that the window is close to a rock that looks like a standing bear, which it's not, it's not about that, but it does make me think... Of Yorick. Oh, I never would have thought of that. Maybe I'm just fried, but... It's like an Easter egg, but an Easter bear. Bear? Yes. (laughs) Uh, We end the chapter with Will's head ringing. His dad had found a window, too, just like him, and he knew it was dangerous. After reading these letters, he realizes that his mother's terrible danger was real, not just in her head. He has no idea what it means, but being so connected with his father in this moment has him feeling pretty good. He thinks on how they'll talk about it someday when they meet, and he folds up the letters, and he goes to bed. God bless Will Perry. Truly. Well, actually, no. Apparently we don't want that for Will Perry in this book series. Not this god. Whatever god's good. I don't know. Pick one. Anyway, now we come to Lighted Flyers. We open Uh... with... Sam Cancino, a black-bearded Texan fur trader, telling Lee Scoresby about the reckless Grumman from the Berlin Academy in a smoky bar of the Samursky Hotel at Nova Zembla. Lee had been feeding vodka to Sam to get him to talk, great move, and he calls for more. Sam tells him all he knows about this Grumman guy. Grumman cut his leg open to the bone walking into a fur trap and used blood moss, what the bears use, to heal it. He was roaring out instructions to his men during this time to take star sights and measurements, even though he was in awful pain. 
Sam says he was a tartar by initiation as Lee tips more vodka into his glass, Hester crouched at his elbows. The Samirsky Hotel is the place for gossip for jobs in the Arctic Drift, and Lee had been here before many times. With so much changing in their world, it's not out of the ordinary for people to gather and talk. I I love, like, just the overall geography of this. So, apparently, like, Nova Zembla is, in fact, a real island. Yes. In Canada, in the Arctic Archipelago. Yes, and uh, our world, the Yenisei River, is the largest river system that flows in the Arctic, and the central of the three main Siberian rivers, so the gulf and its islands surrounding there belong to Russia, technically, but yeah, this is all some real-world stuff. Yeah, but, you know, there's so much changing in their world, it's not out of the ordinary for people to gather and talk, because the River Yenisei, as you just spoke of, it's free of ice at the moment. Pretty remarkable, considering this is an Arctic archipelago. The ocean's (laughs) drained partially away, which is pretty weird, Sea formations were showing up. Also, a giant squid had torn up three fishermen from their boat, and the fog just keeps rolling in. What is it with every story and the giant squid? Like, how you know things are getting weird. It's always like, and then the giant squid came in. And that's Real always Eldridge it. hours. <laughs> yeah. But it, there's always a giant squid. But anyways, everyone's all like, yeah, work is real bad right now in the north. and But at least the bar is packed. Yeah, Interesting. they're all just getting bombed. An elderly man in a seal hunter rig from the bar is eavesdropping. His lemming demon is in his pocket, and he's like, Ah, yeah, Grumman was a tartar, all right, piping in. And he's like, He had that hole in his head drilled. I saw them drill it myself. He had a tartar name, but I can't think of it right now. So Lee's like, I'm going to buy you a drink, and maybe that will help you think of it. And he's like, which tribe did Grumman belong to? And the man gives us a little info dump on the Yenisei Pactars. They live at the foot of the Samanov Range, Samanov Range, with a large rock at the landing. Grumman was a shaman, and the tribe recognized him as such before the drilling actually happened. The drilling went on two nights in a day, and they used a bow drill. Sam Cancino pipes in, and he's like, that's why they respected him so much, because he was a shaman. Yeah, Sam was very confused. He's like, why is everyone following this guy's orders? And he'd actually attributed it to... Grumman's cursing, which I actually think is hilarious. Um, and he, I think deep down he still kind of thinks maybe it was the cursing. Uh, <laughs> but it could be both. It could be both. Um, it, it's kind of funny that Lee's all like plying him with drink here. That happens quite a bit because what, in, in John Perry's first letter, he's all like, I wanted to know more about this guy's mm. info, so I poured him more Jack Daniels. That's Jack Daniels true. sponsor us. I mean, actually, Jack Daniels. It, it's all right. Anyways, <laughs> sorry. I'll take it. <sighs> Grumman was curious. He asked Sam about the land, the animals, wolverines and foxes, and that he was documenting everything about his leg in the animal trap. Temperature during fever, blood moss results, scar form. There was a witch, actually, who had wanted to take Grumman as a lover, and he was all like, no. There's this line, and I think it's very important. I'll be Lee here. Don't worry. You can be the seal hunter, Eliana. Oh, okay. (laughs) Is that so, said Lee, thinking of the beauty of Serafina Pecola. Hmm. (laughs) Chloe's staring off in the distance, thinking of the beauty of Serafina Pecola. Every day. 
He shouldn't have done that, said the seal hunter. A witch offers you her love, you should take it. If you don't, it's your own fault if bad things happen to you. It's like having to make a choice. A blessing or a curse. The one thing you can't do is choose neither. This reads a lot like the choice passage between Serafina and Lee in the first book during Fog and Ice. Uh, Serafina Pekala considered and then said, Perhaps we don't mean the same thing by choice, Mr. Scoresby. Witches own nothing, so we're not interested in preserving value or making profits. And as for the choice between one thing and a yet and another, when you live for many hundreds of years, you know every opportunity will come again. It perfectly cushions that transition over to the witches as the point of view for the rest of this chapter, and it's interesting to see the witches once more kind of used here as a plot device. I digress. Uh, another relevant quote here, though, is what Serafina says in that same chapter, We are all subject to the fates, but we must all act as if we are not or die of despair. Interesting. Especially in the context of this whole story. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Grubbin, I would very much like to not be part of this narrative. <laughs> Lee interjects and says, well, it's probably because he was faithful to another woman. That's That was the rationale he gave to them on Grumman's behalf. And he said, I actually heard something else about Grumman. That he knew the location of a secret object that would protect the holder. And the seal hunter says, well... He knew where it was, but he didn't have it. Also, Grumman killed a man who tried to get the information from him. Sam Cancino pipes in about Grumman's demon, a black eagle with a white head and breast, and the bartender is like, oh, Grumman? Yeah, she was an osprey, a fish eagle. And then the barman sets the story completely straight on Grumman's disappearance, because everyone has all these wild ideas of what happened. And he's like, nah, he was camped out on Sakhalin, and there was an avalanche, and then he heard it from an Inuit man who was with him, who saw it themselves. Lee's passing the bottle around again at this point to keep everyone nice and drunk, and he's like, uh, the one thing I can't figure out is what Grumman was doing. Was it looking for resources? Was it military-related or philosophical? Sam and him talk about the measurements that Grumman was taking, and Sam says that he was measuring the Aurora, and that his main passion seemed to be ancient things. Hmm... Hmm. What kind of ancient things? Like hmm. dust? Hmm. I mean, ancient things do tend to be covered in dust, you know? Yep. Sit there long enough. Yep. Also, I want to do a quick note of, like, when Lee's asking philosophical here, as we know in his world, that basically means scientific. Yeah. Because uh, I kind of forgot that, and I was like, that's weird. Anyways. The seal hunter then offers to network on LinkedIn for Lee, saying that on the mountain, there's an observatory that belongs to the Imperial Muscovite Academy, and they'll be able to tell Lee more. And Sam finally goes, wait, hang on. Why do you want to know? And Lee's like, he owes me money, and they're all satisfied, and they move on. And I, I just love that everyone's like, ah, oh, yes, of course. Gotcha. Makes Get sense. Debtors. Yeah. yeah. Tom Nook. <laughs> The conversation shifts into global climate change, finally, and how beyond the immense fog lies a whole new world. Lee is super interested, and he's like, I'm going to push the conversation further. I love him. Uh, the hunter tells him that when it first happened, he was out in his kayak and looked north, seeing mountains and lands and harbors and trees and fields in the sky. He said he would have gone straight into it had the fog not come with it. 
Sam says there's no way Lee is getting that money <laughs> since Grumman is definitely dead. And the seal hunter is like, oh, I remember his tartar name. It was Joe Pari. Lee, no. <laughs> <clears throat> Come again? What is that? <clears throat> Sorry. Interesting. In my throat. Joe Pari. Joe Pari? Jopari? Doesn't ring a jo- bell. Huh. Interesting. Anyways, and Lee's like, gotta go get that money. I'm gonna <laughs> go to the rad. observatory at North. Uh, is that? Can I fake my death for Tom Nook? <laughs> <laughs> Lee hires a dog sledge driver, and after a lengthy haggling session later, he is on his way with the Tartar. The Tartar's Arctic Fox Seaman helps navigate them, very useful, and Lee keeps checking his compass and realizes, oh, well, this is fucking garbage now, thanks to the magnetic field of the Earth being disturbed. Which thanks, interesting. Asriel. Yeah. His, his compass isn't telling the truth. No one's uh-huh. is, but Lyra's is, even though Phil Pullman was like, I never actually meant for it to be called the Golden Compass. I don't know why we would fucking call it that, whatever. The Tartar tells Lee this isn't the first time that the sky has opened. His people remember it many thousands of generations ago. The sky falls open, spirits move between worlds, ice melts, it all freezes again, and the spirits close up the hole after a while. Lee asks Umak the Tartar what is going to happen, and he says there will be a big spirit war, and that's the extent of the conversation. He drops Lee off at the front path and says he'll wait for him here. Lee climbs for half an hour, and he finds the observatory amidst the fog, and finds a group of astronomers to gossip with about Grumman. The director says he's an Englishman, in spite of his name, but then the deputy interrupts, and he's like, no, he was a member of the Imperial German Academy, and I met him in Berlin, and I am sure he was German. But the director is like, no, 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 he was English, he was a member of the Berlin Academy, and he was a geologist. But then someone else pipes in, and they were like, no, he was a paleoarchaeologist, not a geologist. And then that someone is interrupted by a Yoruba man who is very sensible and says, why would you just add paleo to the front when archaeology is already <laughs> studying the old? Why do you need it to be even older? Fair. And <laughs> the person that suggests the paleoarchaeology says Grumman's search for remains from 30,000 years ago. A number keeps coming up. Mm-hmm. Older than you'd expect. And the director thinks that's nonsense. And he asks for the evidence of civilization being that old. 30,000, it's it's like the 20 good men of the story. But yeah, I do love how it's tying back to all those references that we discussed about civilizations 30,000 years ago. You know, Mary Malone's colleague was studying it. People, and of course, the people's skepticism about it. Yeah, they refused to believe it. Paleoarchaeology is obviously real. And it's actually the archaeology of deep time. It focuses on hominid fossils ranging from 15 million to 10,000 years ago. And basically, it just emphasizes human evolution and how we've adapted to our environment. Under the ice, said the pole. That's the point. According to Grumman, the Earth's magnetic field changed dramatically at various times in the past. And the Earth's axis actually moved, too, so the temperate areas became icebound. Grumman apparently had photograms of these odd formations, and the director's like laughing it off like, oh, it doesn't mean anything. And I'm like, that's pretty bold, considering that's literally happening to you right now. You can like pull out a compass and everyone would fucking know. Hmm, you dang dong. Um, meta. It does feel the like 10 years ago in. was ancient, though. Was we live in ago. a society. <laughs> we live in a society. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Lee asks how they knew Grumman, and they list off another batch of Grumman's successes. The director's like, I met him seven years ago. The Yoruba said he had a paper on variations in magnetic pole two years before the director met him, but he came out of nowhere with no prior work. Truly amazing. If only someone could just establish themselves with no connections. Um, white men. Anyways, so the terminology, <laughs> the terminology of where people are from, you know, this is one of the ways that Pullman's doing is like sort of world building to show this is a different world. But I'm still like always a little curious about what that means in terms of what exploration and, and the international like affairs meant in this world because Lee is thinking in terms of the words like scrailing and Yoruba here, which refers to an ethnic group in Africa, which right now, you know, the people are distributed between like Nigeria and Benin and like these borders that we think of, a lot of them come from more of that like colonizer perspective of these artificial lines that were drawn up, right, for like, because European countries were like, I don't know, I think I want to break it up like this, even though it made no fucking sense. So for Lee to be thinking of them in terms of like Yoruba, but also thinking of like, as you'll note, like, he talks about the Inuit people, which stands in great contrast to how John Perry's letters keep talking about Eskimo, which is considered a slur mm-hmm. for Inuit people. Whereas, you know, Lee is using these actual ethnic groups' names um, that they're more comfortable using for themselves. So it makes me wonder, like, how things, again, played out here. But it could also just be, like, I don't know, those places could exist with other names, like, the countries that we have delineated here or something like that and maybe Lee's just actually fucking respectful and specific well I'd um, also say it comes from his profession right like oh uh, yeah mean, let's face it he's the Han Solo smuggler like Davos Seaworth you know from a Song of Ice and Fire character he is out on the open wind and he meets all these people and I mean uh, he has to be good at speaking to people yeah I mean, and acknowledging and that. them that's true. That's true. He Especially- trades with foreign people like all the time to him. Yeah, and like that's a way to establish connections, especially in his work. And I think that makes sense because he is using the term scrailing for this other guy, which like isn't like probably the proper terminology for right. whatever this guy's ethnicity is. I mean, but- let's be real. Like Lee's best friend is a fucking bear. I mean, the guy is pretty diverse. Okay, that's true. The Panzer Bjorn. Yeah. I'm just saying, and the that's people's. like pretty that's much true. an almost, it was almost a fucking extinct race for a hot second there because of that fucking jackass king. That's true. To get all them killed by the magisterium. I'm just saying, a protective yeah. bear class. So, yeah, Lee's just got a lot of, knows a lot of people in a lot of different places and has learned a lot. He's a worldly man. But one of these other people, they're brewing a coffee and Hester tells Lee, yo, you gotta look at this guy. That's grilling. He's spoken very little. Yeah, that man is, like, very angrily just, like, staring, and Lee's like, maybe it's just his face. (laughs) Maybe he just has resting bitch face. (laughs) Hester's like, Lee, get a grip. (laughs) Lee, what are you doing? And then Lee's like, oh, yes, I see. He is wearing a ring with the church symbol engraved upon it. Then we have this line of, Every philosophical research establishment 
so he'd heard, had to include on its staff a representative of the Magisterium to act as a censor and suppress the news of any heretical discoveries. So realizing this, and remembering something he'd heard Lyra say, Lee asked, Tell me, gentlemen, do you happen to know if Grumman ever looked into the question of dust? <laughs> and you have Lee here, now learning how to troll hardcore from Lyra. Well, to be fair, he learned the topic from Lyra. I'll True. give you that. But I think Lee, like, you know, he's a... Uh... He's pretty good. He had that chat with her way back in Northern Lights when he was like, you know, what if your dad lied, kid? Maybe your dad didn't really have Grumman's head. And I feel like this whole search is uh, encompassing that one line. Pretty much. He's all like, alright, so everyone thinks that they know what's up with Grumman. Sounds like Asriel took advantage of that. But anyways, after he asked that question, everyone fall silent, they immediately look at Skrailing out of the side of their eyes, or like they're not even really looking at him, but everyone knows that the the attention's focused there. And Lee's like, shit, Hester was right. <laughs> so then he acts all innocent and apologizes for offending them, and then Skrailing asks, where did you learn about it? And he answers honestly from Passenger a while back. Yeah, he's like, I don't really know what it is, but it sounds like something Grumman might be into. And he's like, I think I heard it was Celestial, but I'm surprised because I've never heard nothing about it in my years as an aeronaut in the skies. And he says, whatever it is, what is it? And the screaming says, it's not important. It's merely a celestial phenomenon. Do not ask about it. And Lee's <laughs> like, ah, that's my clue to get the fuck out of here. So he bids them adieu. He grabs up Hester. He's like, let's go. He follows her down the path. And ten minutes into their walk, they are attacked by the screaming's owl. The owl misses, Lee pulls his revolver out, Hester starts playing lookout, and he shoots at the Skraling. His demon crumples to the ground, struggling to fold her snowy owl wings, and Lee's like, you are a damn fool, we are all in the same boat right now with this goddamn sky, and here you are trying to shoot me? The Skraling tells him, it is too late to stop, and the Magisterium <laughs> already knows of your inquiries, I have sent a message, people are now looking for Grumman. And then he's like, Lee, you're an enemy of the church now. And Lee's like, thank God. No, I'm joking. Uh, and then as he's passing, the Skrilling quotes this line, By their fruits shall ye know them. By their questions shall ye see the serpent gnawing at their heart. I love this because it's a total variation, slight variation, on Matthew seven sixteen from the New Testament, which is, Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. So basically, Jesus was stating that one will be able to identify false prophets by the fruit they bear or the lies they bring to the table. But the irony, of course, is that the Magisterium is the bad guys here, and they're actually the false prophets. Yeah. And uh, there's that second line that obviously isn't in this bit from Matthew seven sixteen, but they are using the Bible verses where they are the villains. Absolutely. And, like, we know that the Bible's a little different in this yeah. world. Uh, one of the key ways was, obviously, we talked about that Garden of Eden passage 
in the last book. But here, I, I do think that that last line, right? It sounds like it's supposed to be part of the Bible here. Uh, by their question, shall ye see the serpent gnawing at their heart? But it's part of their, in this world. Yeah, and I, it makes me think that it, maybe that wasn't even like actually part of their history, but something that the Magisterium kind of like snuck in there because it's very much the way it's phrased intended to squash curiosity. Yeah. I agree. No, absolutely. The owl is now softly hooting, and the snow's turning red around the railing. <laughs> Lee's like, "All right, all right, I'm gonna stop the bleeding," and then he's like, "No, I will now have the martyr's palm, and you will not deprive me of that." Yeah, Lee's like, "Fine, uh, I have one last question before you go," and the screaming's like, Fuck "Can't that. do that." The owl <laughs> shivers, disappears. The screaming's like, "Bye, I'm dead," and. I, I really like this bit. Um, most martyrs in Western Christian art, you know, they're depicted as holding the palm frond or leaf, and usually it symbolizes victory of spirit over flesh, because those who have been killed over religious persecution or their testimony in their God or Jesus uh, are usually interred with a palm leaf on their tomb. So the palm branches carried on like Palm Sunday originate in the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And there's also in the book of Leviticus, for example, God told Moses to command the people. Uh, he said, On the first day you shall take the product of Hadar trees, branches of palm trees, bows of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. Uh, since then, in Judaism, the palm was seen as a fertile tree. Its fronds used to symbolize victory or triumph, part of Sukkot, uh, sort of a harvest event. And in ancient Greece, athletes were awarded with a palm at the completion of their race to celebrate a victory as well. So the palm is very, very, very symbolic when it comes to a lot of religious history and just history in general. Yeah, it's interesting that the Magisterium has kept it going into this time. Like, do they give them a palm? Like, is this guy going to get a painting made out of him? Like, with the palm in it? Like, does can everyone just expect to have a painting made out of them? I guess that's also kind of meta when you think about it, too. Like, this is what you're willing to die for. What It's almost like the Skraling is looking at Lee in the eye for, in the eye, you know, and saying, like, this is what I'm dying for. Yeah, and it's like, really? Really, dog? Hester tells Lee to take the Skraling's ring, though, since it could get them out of trouble if they come across the church. And at first he refuses. He's like, I'm not a thief. And Hester's like, I don't know. We're renegades. You got to do it anyway right now. <laughs> he does it too and it is smart uh, he rolls the Skraling's body over the rocky cliff edge and we get this passage that makes me so sad Lee had never enjoyed violence and he hated killing although he'd had to do it three times before no sense in thinking that said Hester he didn't give us a choice and we didn't shoot to kill damn it Lee he wanted to die these people are insane I guess you're right he said and put the pistol away Seven out of ten. Thank you, thank you. You're welcome. I'm working on it. I'm not very good with the accents. It's actually very much my weak point. We'll get there. You'll just practice all the Lee lines from now on. Uh, they get to Umak, ready to go with the dogs. This is like the funniest part of the chapter to me, because it turns out Umak knows literally half of the information <laughs> Lee found in the observatory and bar combined. So all of this truly could have been like partially avoided. Umak is like, everyone knows Dr. Grumman, and he tells Lee that <laughs> Joe Pari is not a tartar name. Lee asks if he's dead, and Umak says, I can't tell you that, but you should ask the Yenisei tribe. 
Umak says that he could be dead, could be alive, could be neither. Maybe he's in the spirit world. Really fucking helpful, Umak. I mean, in a way he kind of is, but like, where was Pullman's editor? Has he recanted like all this information? Wink. wink. Back at the station, Lee goes to the docks. He's looking for a ship to find the Yenisei. And the witches, I guess, are looking for some stuff, too. It's not a new chapter, by the way. <laughs> Just making sure we all know this is one chapter. It was really long in the uh, next part. But anyway. So to recap real quick. Joe Pari. Grumman. Stanislaus Grumman. Joe Pari. John Pari. Is a guy, to recap, who planned to walk the spirit world, who had an Inuit man see him die in an avalanche? Interesting. Interesting. This couldn't possibly mean anything moving forward. No, I wouldn't. And so we go to those witches. When will this chapter end? Never. Chloe. Never. Fucking never. <laughs> Ruta Scotty. I feel like I'm saying her name like Scotty. Ruta Scotty doesn't know. I was and- going to say <laughs> <laughs> Scotty doesn't know. Don't tell Ruta. Scotty doesn't know. That is, like, the later part of this chapter. Anyway, Serafina flew for days and nights in a strange world that they don't know with strange animals and scents. They find food and shelter, and the land is almost good to live on, except for, you know, the weird, like, spooky specters that fly overhead like mist. <laughs> Ruta Scotty asks if Serafina thinks the mists are alive, and Serafina says she can't really answer that, but she sure can feel their malice. The specters are earthbound, thankfully, but later the witches see what they can do. They hover over a river crossing where a band of travelers with no demons seem to be moving along because we are in a different world, everyone. A cry comes from the leading horse where a man points at the trees. The specters come pouring out onto the people and the people scatter. The adult leaders completely abandon the group as fast as they can. Serafina is in shock. She tells her sisters to watch but not interfere until she commands. She notices that there are children in the group, but the children don't seem to really see the specters, and the specters don't seem to see them either. Uh, The specters only have misty eyes for the adults. There's an old woman with two kids in her lap, and she's actually trying to use the kids as a shield or something, but then the kids, like, get free of her, running around, they're reaping, as specters start attacking the adults, and the old woman then ends up, like, enveloped by the shimmering mist, and all the adults, except for two who ran, the two who ran earlier, are quote-unquote devoured by the mist. We have this scene with the father, with his child, uh, and they're trying to actually ford the river to run, but unfortunately the specter gets him anyways, and the child is crying on his father's back while he slows down and just starts to stand in the water, helpless. What was happening to him? Serafina hovered above the water a few feet away, gazing, horrified. She'd heard from the travelers in her own world of the legend of the vampire, and she thought of that as she watched the specter busy gorging on something. Some quality the man had, his soul, his demon, perhaps. For in this world, evidently, demons were inside, not outside. His arms slackened under the child's thighs, and the child fell into the water behind him and grabbed vainly at his hand, gasping, crying, but the man only turned his head slowly and looked down with perfect indifference at his little son drowning beside him. Super sad. It's obviously, like, not the same, but what I think of 
during these scenes is like Tony Macarios and his mother, like Tony Macarios in the books and like how addiction had taken his mother from him and she wasn't like altogether always there or aware of him. And that made Tony vulnerable to be taken. And you can kind of see that, I think, reflected here with these children's parents. It's just like Little Boy Lost. The night was dark, no father was there, the child was wet with dew, the mire was deep, and the child did weep, and away the vapor flew. And the mire was deep. And the child did weep. And away the vapor flew. Seraphina swoops in to save the child, and a specter almost hits her, feeling a hideous pain at her heart, and Ruta helps pull them both to safety, the specter drifting mist behind Seraphina. Ruta tries to shoot an arrow at it, but it just goes straight through. By the time it's over, all the adults left have a terrible stillness about them, and Seraphina tries to speak to one of the women. Her eyes are vacant, although she looks up at Seraphina's pinches, and she looks down and away again. The other witches look at victims as well, and they are despondent. One of the witches points out the horseman ahead, who had initially fled, uh, and he's watching the scene. Seraphina springs into the air to speak with him. At first, he unslings the rifle from his back, and he's wheeling his horse around for safety. But Seraphina makes the gesture of putting her bow down, uh, which is an obvious, of course, sign of peace. So the guy lowers his own rifle and waits and watches the scene of like these beautiful, young, ferocious women wearing black silk scraps and riding pine branches. And, you know, he's waiting, he's very calm. Seraphina, though, sees sorrow and strength in his face as she starts to go towards him. They exchange names. His is Joachim Lorenz, and he asks them if they treat with the devil since they're witches. I thought it was Kinda. great that his name was Joachim, though, because the husband of St. Anne and the father of Mary, mother of Jesus, is mm. Joachim of Nazareth. I was like, yeah. oh, good reference, Pullman. Uh and he is the father here, right? He is the uh, male role of these children. So Joachim of Nazareth marries St. Anne. He's a philanthropist. He's pious. He comes to settle in Jerusalem. His sacrifices go unnoticed by God. He's unable to get Anne pregnant. And he withdraws to the desert. He fasts and does penance for 40 days. Uh, an angel promises them a child. And then Mary, mother of Jesus, is born. And the rest, as they say, is fiction. But... She asks if that would make no laughter at that. That was a great line. The rest, as they say, is fiction. Yes. She asks if that would make them his enemy, and he says maybe once. But times are different now. It's like He's surprised that they don't know about the specters, and it's really astounding how everyone doesn't seem to understand, like, yes, they're not from here. Like, if there's anywhere in the world that you think people would get it, it's here. Right, and he says there's no defense against them, that only the children remain untouched, and any traveling party now usually has one man and one woman, by law, uh, on horseback, because they have to run if the specters attack, or else the children are just going to like be on their own. Yeah, but the problem is that the specters have multiplied, and where there used to be no more than like a dozen at a time to deal with, now there are far more. He asks what they're looking for, and she tells him she's looking for a child, named Lyra Bellacroix, called Lyra Silvertongue. He hasn't seen her, but he did see angels the other night, making for the pole, troops of them armed, shining in the air. He talks about how his grandfather had often spoken of them, that they passed through their world semi-often. 
Serafina asks if he'll tell them more about the world in exchange for their guard against the specters that night. He agrees. They help to move the wagons away from the specters, but must painfully leave the adults behind. The younger children don't understand why they're leaving their parents behind. The older ones look bleak and dumb, having already lost some of their owners, seen it happen. Yeah. Serafina picked up the little boy. And then we have this line. Serafina picked up the little boy who'd fallen in the river, and he was crying out for his daddy, reaching back over Serafina's shoulder to the silent figure still standing in the water, indifferent. Serafina felt his tears on her bare skin. I often don't like the way that Pullman writes the witches, as we know, but I do appreciate kind of this contrast between Serafina and Ruta in this chapter, where Serafina is cautious and careful and aware, and Ruta doesn't even look back when she leaves them. Serafina gives Lee this speech that's, you know, the bigger sp- picture is more important than your balloon, Lee Scoresby, but here she is, grasping at a little boy who's fallen in the river, saving him. Yeah, that's true. Serafina uh. watches the female rider with the group. She wears rough canvas breeches and rides like a man, saying nothing to the witches. She moves the children along sternly, ignoring their tears. I thought this was an interesting bit to pull out because this woman is not really given much besides this as characterization. Uh, she just ran off at the beginning, and you do notice her in the background as being a woman when you learn that there's a man and a woman in the party, but... It's something that I think Lowe, our friend Lowe, they would have a lot of really good stuff to say about this, actually. And uh, they did just put out some gender in his Dark material stuff. And now I'm like, I want a full analysis of this. Yeah, how this woman goes unnamed and has no lines. But Joachim. Lawrence. <laughs> Even gets a fucking last name. Yeah. Get a line that actually includes him with... The evening sun suffused the air with a golden light in which every detail was clear and nothing was dazzling, and the faces of the children and the man and woman too seemed immortal and strong and beautiful. Later as the embers of a fire glowed in the circle of ashy rocks and the great hills lay calm under the moon, Joachim Lawrence told Serafina and Ruta Scotti about the history of his world. The prose is totally lit in these chapters, though, um, where I feel like Subtle Knife is really good at builds really well, but Northern Lights was great and had great prose, but I feel like Subtle Knife prose is like, Pullman, damn, you pulled it out on this one for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. He's enjoying himself. Maybe he could have made two chapters though, but whatever. Oh my god. Joachim tells the witches that once his world was happy with elegant cities, fertile fields, and no children were hungry, fishermen and merchants had game and product, and the great cities like Brazil or Benin... Ireland, Korea, all had fortunes in great economies. There's this line that I thought was kind of standout. At night, masked lovers met under the rose-hung colonnades or in the lamp-lit gardens, and the air stirred with the scent of jasmine and throbbed to the music of the wire-strung mandarone. I thought it was just like such a very romantic, like you can see the scene and you can feel the heat of the night in the air. And I almost feel like this has some Eurasia influence going on here, right? Um, This Mandarone, I'm not sure if this is like random lost small world building that's supposed to represent a mandolin. Uh, I'm just, I'm not sure. Maybe more of this in the discussion or maybe I save it for a rainy day when you finish the Commonwealth because I feel like there might be something here. Maybe there is. Maybe. Maybe. But 300 years ago, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Of the Torre degli Angeli, 
the Tower of the Angels' fault, or it was judgment for some great unknown sin. But the specters appeared out of nowhere, and the world had been haunted since. Like original sin. Yeah, for them, for this world, in a way. Yeah, yeah in a way. Uh, there is something I wanted to pop out, and there's a picture. I'm going to share links with you guys in the description, don't you worry. But the Torre Tavira in uh, Cadiz, Spain, it's an 18th century creation in Cadiz, famous for its watchtowers, and the biggest watchtower, the focal point, the highest point in the whole town, north of the Plaza de Topete, often referred to as the Plaza of Flowers, a triangular plaza. But it's just interesting architecture to think of this square as inspiration for uh for this area and for of course Chitigaze. It had a seventeen hundreds observation tower, a camera obscura, and two exhibition halls, and it's absolutely gorgeous, and now I can never see Chitigaze any other way. And then we have another quote here. Now imagine what it is to live in a world with specters in it. How can we prosper? When we can't rely on anything continuing as it is. At any moment a father might be taken, or a mother, and the family fall apart. A merchant might be taken and his enterprise fall, and all his clerks and factors lose their employment. And how can lovers trust their vows? All the trust and all the virtue fell out of our world when the specters came. When COVID-19 came. I mean, actually, though, like, disease really does break down trust within societies. Um, Hell yeah. I trust no one. I don't even trust my cats. Oh my god. Um, Those dirty little bitches. They can stay in their room. Don't they already? Um, Yes. But trust seems to be like a thing between these two chapters, right? But earlier it was Lyra and Will talking about trusting one another. But I don't know. I think it's interesting how Joaquin frames this not in the sense of just like how horrible like this thing that the specters are doing. Like we're seeing that immediate impact, right? But it it takes a huge toll on the stability by removing that sense of public trust, not just like in the world, but for everyone with each other. And we see what that looks like with the younger generation of like why and how Angelica and the other children are like super shitty to Will and Lyra and even to cats. Yeah, I mean, the specters are just the symptom of the bigger overarching disease. And as we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to see the disease in full functioning glory, right, being built. Serafina inquires about the philosophers and the tower and gets some answers. The tower exists in Chitigaze, the city of magpies, and we of course have talked about Chitigaze already, but it's named that because magpies steal, and that is all that they do now. They create nothing and steal from other worlds. The philosophers in the Tower of Angels discovered everything they could about other worlds and doors to them, and that let the specters in at the same time. And the tool to get into these worlds is still used, he says, to get gold, jewel, corn, pencils, and that's the source of their wealth in this world. The Guild of Thieves, he bitterly calls them. Yeah, so the Torah Deli Anjali slash Tower of Angels, like, here very much feels like it's Chittagase's version of the Tower of Babel. It's like a feat of hubris from humans who thought that they could, you know, just take everything, including knowledge, uh, because... It seems like their great sin isn't necessarily that they were connecting worlds with one another, because we see that, like, Pullman wrote that one synagogue was, like, this flourishing place because it was a port of great cultural exchange. They had jasmine flowers, they had people from all over the world, and they were a flourishing city because of that. But 
it was what was made in the tower that was sinful because afterwards people stopped participating in that sort of cultural exchange. They stopped coming together and making things together. The people of Chittagaze weren't like giving things back to the other worlds that they were going to or sharing their own knowledge. They would just like take things and bring it back and be like, look, I have this now. They weren't like, I made this. They're like, I just got this. And so the punishment in a way, you know, not like actually like, consciously from someone but like the punishment for that is like for the people there is well if you're not going to use this power of knowledge and thinking anyway to like improve and to make things if you're going to be lazy then it's like we'll take the story that yeah the story takes it from them in terms of that thought and consciousness through the specters hmm. that's Sorry. a really good way to look at it no especially when you look at like resources and i mean it's absolutely Again, meta-commentary on some of the countries in this world we live in. In this world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's when, you know, people with power abuse that power, and instead of using it to create and using your power to actually, you know, create a full-functioning, self-sustaining economy. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, sometimes tools can be used and, like, it makes everything better, right? Like the printing press. And everyone be like, wow, this is rad. We can all like just make information easier for everyone to get. Baller. Yeah, the problem is that they were just reallocating it. They weren't reallocating the means of production. Yeah, they weren't even learning to make it themselves. Teach a man to fish. Anyways. Anyways. Ruta asks why the children are unharmed by the specters, and Joaquin says it's the greatest mystery of them all. The innocence of children possesses some sort of power to keep specters away from them. Hmm. Hmm. But specter orphans are common, and they roam the country, making money from adults to get supplies for them, drifting, scavenging. Wow, two two on the nose. It, it's a rough oh balance, God. but life had been like this so far. That is, until the storm hit. It is interesting that all the children, like, here, these specter orphans, like, who are super sad-seeming, are so differently characterized from, like, Angelica and her team. Like, the younger ones here are scared, the older ones are already, like, bleak and seem listless. It's, like, it's almost as though the specters have come for them already, even though they aren't old enough, and I think that's part of what's just so sad about this world. Like, there's no future, not just because of, like, all the things Joaquin was saying, right? But also, like, because the children realize, well, like, shit, what's the fucking point? This is what awaits me. They can't even envision a future to work towards and try to build. Yeah, they're just trying to survive yeah. where these children that roam the lands, like he's speaking of, like Angelica and their group, I mean, they are... Angelica. They're what happens after, right? They're the anger that comes after the cut, after the loss. They've yeah. already been through this. They've already grieved. They're all the lost boys. Mm, absolutely. Uh, but they're all gonna eventually grow up and shit's gonna go get bad. But we don't want to grow up, Peter. The In the storm, there were great cracking noises, like the world breaking apart, followed by an immense fog that covered everything. And once the fog cleared, the specters came by thousands across the land. And Joaquin's like, Now it's your turn! <laughs> no, he doesn't say it with that much gusto. I'm sorry, that was a lie. Why have the witches come to our world and what is your world like? Serafina tells him as much as she knows, truthfully, since, you know, he was pretty honest with her too. When she's done, he considers what she said. And he says to her, I told you about the power they say our philosophers have of opening the way to other worlds. Well, something that occasionally they leave a doorway open out of forgetfulness. 
I wouldn't be surprised if travelers from other worlds found their way here from time to time. We know that angels pass through after all. Yes, why would anyone be surprised about that? Literally. <laughs> he explains angels to her. Their name for themselves is the Bene Elim, which loosely is the same pretty much as the Bene Elom, the class of angels closest to mortals, like the sons of gods in both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Apocrypha. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he is also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them and the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Genesis six, one to four. So in Christianity, there are these different classes of angels divided by spheres. I'm just going to talk about the A-listers, you know, the first sphere. <laughs> angels we're just gonna pop it with the a-listers here pop some cavassier here with uh thrones are actually the one i really want to talk about the most here but they function as yes game of uh thrones they function as chariots of god driven by cherubs they are peaceful and submissive and depicted as great wheels that have many eyes living in the cosmos where material first takes shape they sing glory to God, give out divine justice, keep cosmic harmony. Thrones are associated by some with the Ophanim or the Erelim from the Jewish angelic hierarchy. The idea they are separate or one in the same is often debated as well. They're very closely related to cherubs in many scriptures like Ezekiel 10.17. When they stopped, the others stopped. When they rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them for the spirit of the living creatures, cherubism, was in the wheels. Seraphim, which translates to literally to burning ones, is a synonym for serpents, usually in the Bible. They're the highest class of angels and serve God at his throne, and cherubs have four faces. Man, ox, lion, eagle, and they guard the tree of life in Eden and the throne of God. I think Pullman's very much so playing with some of these things, especially as we'll learn maybe with facets of personalities for angels, from the first sphere, and it's obvious he's kind of created them almost into a militia, a military order of angels here. Yeah, I think um, that's definitely something he's pulling from. Uh, I want to say when you're talking about the chariots mm -hmm. driven by cherubs, I was like, but what if they were chair ups, like chairs that you sit on? Anyways, mm -hmm. um, there's, like, also in a moment later this chapter where the text tells us that Ruta Scotty sees the angels as having, like, human-like bodies, but that's because that's what she expects them to look like and see. And they're like, but if she could actually see what they look like, they look more like architectures uh, of intelligence and emotion or something like that. It, but Ruta's too young to really get it. She's only 400 years old. <laughs> um, but it does make me think of a line that John Perry allegedly quotes to Nelson from Hamlet. Of, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Oh, that's good. That's all. That's really good. Uh, so... The angel's flesh is more finely drawn or made of spirit because they're not quite like humans. They carry heaven's messages, shining like fireflies, and you hear their wing beats on a still night. 
In ancient days, it's said they bred with humans, like I said above, even with real angels or fictional real angels. Joaquin had been in Santalia on his way home when the fog had rolled in, beset by specters, and he looked for cover in a shepherd's hut next to a birch wood, hearing voices in the fog, cries of alarm, anger, and by dawn, swoosh of arrows and swords. Afraid, he stayed inside, and when he ventured out, a magnificent figure lay wounded by the spring. He looked away and the figure disappeared, but that was the closest he ever came to an angel. He says after seeing the angels go to the pole last night, something's definitely happening. A war, maybe, like the war in heaven thousands of years ago that no one knows what the outcome was. Hmm. Hmm. He thinks it would be a devastating war if it did happen again, but there's still a bit of hope at the end that the specters may be swept from the world and they could all start anew. He looks up, thinking the angels would probably make a fortress to plan to assault heaven. He watches the stars, and Serafina asks if he's ever heard of dust, which he hasn't. He points at the sky, telling her to look, for a troop of angels is crossing. Wow. Amaze. They're all like, wow, what angels? I think it's interesting that they see angels in the constellation of Ophiuchus, which some of you may know as that constellation that's totally fucked up however you interpreted your zodiac sign not for me i'm still i'm still a leo actually uh but Ephiuchus is the serpent bearer and as you all know serpents maybe you don't know maybe you we haven't stressed this enough i don't know serpents are important to this story hell even with what i just said with the seraphim angels yeah um seraphim pecola just kidding <laughs> Uh, but even with them, that's that's a translation to serpent. So the fact that the angels are going through that, yeah, through the serpent bearer, the angel bearer. Yeah, they're going to go, I don't know, bear serpents or some shit, <laughs> but not bears. Um, Ruta Scotty watches, tells Serafina, all right, I got to go. I'm going to go with those angels. I'm going to hitch a ride, see if they're heading towards Azrael. Mwah, darling. Love yeah. you, darling. Love you, Serafina, darling. Mwah. That's how I feel about Ruta Scotty in my head. That's she's what she's like doing. Fran. Yeah. <laughs> I could see it. I could really see it. She tries to catch up. She finds, again, that to her they kind of look like humans, but they're winged. Much taller. Also, very naked, very swole. Ruta... I think maybe Ruta <laughs> is just a little thirsty also. I think she is. That's I mean, she's, she's literally like... chasing a booty call right now to heaven, you know? Yeah, and she doesn't even know if, like that booty call is going to pick up on the other end. She's just really <laughs> banking on, like, you know, old times. She's like, maybe maybe it's going to work out for me. Ruta measures their strength from behind in case she, like, needs to fight them. <laughs> Interesting. They aren't armed, but they also seem like all-powerful celestial beings, so she's like, I'm just going to get my bow ready in case. You know, just going to take my chances, shoot my shot. She yeah. speeds up, flies alongside them, and commands their attention. She looked around, sitting on her pine branch, proud and unafraid, though her heart was beating with the strangeness of it, and her demon fluttered to sit close to the warmth of her body. Each angel being was distinctly an individual, and yet they had more in common with one another than with any human she had seen. What they shared was a shimmering, darting play of intelligence and feeling that seemed to sweep over them all simultaneously. They were naked, but she felt naked in front of their glance. It was so piercing and went so deep. <sighs> Phrasing. Ruta, Ruta. Still, really? she was unashamed of what she was, and she returned their gaze with head held high. Somebody write this on AO3. I command it. 
Ruta Scotty. She's like, I'm hot too. Threesome with the angels? I mean. It's more than three. She's like, I heard I heard you like mating. The angels have. <laughs> oh my god. The angels have been following a call, a mating call. Uh, Ruta asks, is it Lord Asriel's? And they're like, I don't know, maybe. Because I'm mating with that dick. <laughs> uh, she orders them, all right, well, guide me then to Lord Asriel. Ruta's 416. She's wiser than any other like of us puny humans but apparently she's basically a baby next to these angels they're like she doesn't know anything how cute uh she sees the angels again in human form because that's what she expects and they'd be more like an architecture actually if she could see their true form but she's not she can't because she's a baby i love this it reminds me of in Doctor Who, the TARDIS, the blue box they fly in, Eliana. You know what I'm talking about-ish? Yeah. The big I've blue se- box. I've seen it. I've seen pop cultures. Okay, references. cool. You understand the internet. Good. Um, so that box, the only reason it's that blue box, that vehicle, it's supposed to like transform. It has something called a chameleon circuit that allows mm. it to like make the eye see what it wants to see. So, like, it could just be like, hmm, what will blend in in 18th century Spain the most, you know, where we can land and look like just sidewalk trash. Um, And, of course, it's broken, but it also translates things, too. So it translates languages, etc. So it makes me think of that so much. Like, there's a chameleon circuit at play. Interesting. (laughs) Yes. I was thinking, interestingly, a bit of, like, Lovecraftian like ideas because I know that sometimes they're always like the way that they express oh crazy horror that no human mind can understand they're all like it looked like non-Euclidean architecture geometry and I'm like okay (laughs) word Uh, anyway the angels are like beating their wings and fly off are they beating off and flying their wings who knows Ruta Scotty joins them the light is gone from the night but there's light that Ruta sees and it's emanating from elsewhere, illuminating the angels who, you know, basically they've got that great eternal golden hour photography lighting. We all need it. We all Boca deserve lighting it. on fleek. They're not, they're not on Instagram, okay? We need this more than oh they God. do. She rejoices while she travels with them, feeling the life course through her from earth and plant and animal alike. We get this line, she delighted in being of the same substance as them, and in knowing that when she died, her flesh would nourish other lives as they had nourished her. Okay. Interesting thought. Mm-hmm. Ruta's also happy to see Lord Asriel again, probably, and she flies on for another night. The air eventually changes at a certain point, and she notes that they moved to a different world and asks, Oh, how did we do it? When, when did this happen? Where's the boundary? <laughs> The angels answer, there are invisible gateways to the world that you witches can't see, but we angels can. Ruta, of course, she's like, I'm so smart. She memorizes the jagged rock peaks in front of her face, knowing she will be able to bring her sisters to this place if she needs to. I think Ruta's so funny. She's just so funny here. She's like, doesn't understand what a child she seems like to these angels. And it's just crazy because she's all like, yes, I'm controlling them and telling them what to do the angels do not care yeah they're like okay i guess you could come along for the ride and she's all like i know where the window is got him i (laughs) fooled those angels and again they're like i do not give a shit about you 
<laughs> you are a foolish witch mortal. Yeah. Rita uh, just kind of reminds me a little bit of, like, first book Lyra especially. <laughs> so it's MTV Cribs. They arrive at Azrael's Fortress. Mountain range of black rock, broken slabs. The highest point, a structure with battlements. Beneath the fortress, fires and furnaces are lit, and Ruta hears hammers pounding away. And from all around, flights of angels and machines and glass cabins are coming toward the fortress, zeppelins floating like drones overhead. And then we have this final line where Ruta's like, And is Lord Asriel there? she said. Yes, he's there, the angels replied. Then let's fly there to meet him, and you must be my guard of honor. Obediently, they spread their wings and set their course toward the gold-rimmed fortress with the eager witch flying before them. Really good setup, though. This scene closing on Asriel's industrial warfare, the armies of angels and witches and other people closing in, ready to destroy worlds. Amazing. Very metal. Really a great chapter. Not being able to read every line of Philip's prose here is very hard because it was very beautiful. Um, But everything is just so set right yeah there's a lot of really great imagery for that last scene know, for for a lot of like this second chapter that should have been two chapters <laughs> it should have been three chapters i'm dead true 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 Ugh. well you guys if you have not read the uh last book and the rest of the subtle knife we will ask you to tune out now we are going to launch into our discussion where we spoil the hell out of the amber spyglass and out of the rest of the subtle knife i know we have lots to chat about so duck out now and we will see you next month or stay tuned if you're ready to get spoiled all right so the discussion and i'm just gonna say i love how at the beginning of these chapters you know, this quarrel between Lyra and Will. Yes, they go on a date in the cinema, but also, like, this... It kind of feels already like they're that old couple bickering, and then it ends with this tender moment, especially as Lyra thinks and, like, tells Will about the big betrayal to Roger, and it's noteworthy. She, I feel like she's not just admitting it to Will, right? She's kind of admitting mm-hmm. it again to herself and healing once more, even though, you know, she calls it this big betrayal and turns out to Philip Pullman, this is not the big betrayal, but whatever. He's wrong. Yeah... I, I think that it is such a big betrayal. Like, it's it's hard for me to not feel like that's a retcon, you know? And I, I know Coleman's got a lot of big plans, obviously, with some of the stuff I've discussed connecting, like, Secret Commonwealth and Subtle Knife. No spoilers, but, uh, I mean, this is what has Lyra at her most vulnerable. This is, she's completely busted down, broken down, like, doesn't know what to do with her life. She's like, wow, my dad's a supervillain, my mom's a supervillain, and my best friend's dead, and it's pretty much my fault. Not really. You're doing great, babe, but <laughs> feels like yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. She's got a lot going on. Um, she and Will, like, you know, they both clearly have daddy issues different. Maybe yeah. we can go into that another day. Absolutely. Uh. You know, it was very hard. I don't know if any of you people could tell, but uh, all I wanted to do was scream, this is John Perry. Like, it's very obvious that everybody's talking about John Perry. You end the chapter with John Perry with Will. You start the chapter with Lee looking for John Perry. And no, it's not said, but Joe Parry, really? That's that's how creative you got, Pullman? Come on. Um, <laughs> that line it's, re- it's, it's like a children's book I know an ish he didn't write it as a children's book listen <laughs> yeah I, he just wrote a book about children 
honestly, I do kind of wonder, like, A, I loved that setup. B, like, I do wonder, who got it? Who got it the first time that they read it as kids? Because, like, I definitely probably didn't. I don't remember. I don't remember anything from that time. I remember some things. I got it on my first read, but that's because I'm an adult, so. I was just, I was just a wee bab. It's just if you read those letters, it's so obvious. Yeah. But I don't remember if I was just, like, flying through it or not, you know? Yeah. I loved the connection between the not Moxie cat. I love that Will is totally lost between worlds. He's accompanied by that Moxie-esque cat. And then in the end, he does get Kerjava. So this tabby is really great, especially with kids being cornered. It just makes it something so much more personal for Will's connection with it. And I just really loved it. Yeah, I just realized, you know, like, same as how... So this is a little, a little dustier, but in Lyra's Oxford, right, we are basically explicitly told that Lyra and birds kind of have, like, this big connection, even though Pan doesn't end up becoming a bird, whatever, but, like, birds protect her and shit, and I guess, like, that's Will and cats. Mm-hmm. But also, I don't know, Will's protectiveness over this animal, even though, like... It- he kind of feels that over other humans, depending on who. It, it it just feels like it makes me think of like Adam from Adam and Eve in a way. Oh, okay. Just because yeah, aminals, that. that's it. That's it. Yeah. That's how the furthest that thought goes. Okay. You know, the structure of this episode, I know I talked about it in the top half, but it was just so chef's kiss. Even in blending that first chapter with Will, reading the letters into Lee, looking for Grumman, looking for Joe Pari, and that broken, angry, bitter, alone group of children with the cat. And then, of course, that alone and bitter group of children with the specters. It was heartbreaking and perfect. And in a bottle, these two chapters are really perfect together. Even though I keep complaining about that chapter's length, I think it it told such a great mini story. Yeah, they pair together so well and the way it reflects. um, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And not just like the letters from Grumman, but like what you were saying of, you know, what does it mean to be children without parents? And like, at least Lyra and Will, right? They're, they're different from the kids in Chittagaze because they get to leave this world. They have a future that they're looking to build. Like that that's so much of what their story is about, right? Like we're going to try and make something of future that's better for everyone else. And at some point, Lyra and Will are like, I don't know if we're actually going to get out of this alive. Yeah. We went on this journey, but like they're still like, well, but we can do this. Yeah, they have to be like the front running orphans in this story. You know, like they have to be yeah. like the, the world orphan speakers here. The strong thematics of those kids left without families all because the philosophers took and took and took, and those with power grew more and more powerful and greedy. Like Yeah. Asriel, yes, he is trying to fight a god, a false god. He's literally tearing apart the entire worlds. And yes, Angelica and her little brother seem like little fucks, but when Tulio dies in the next bit, it's yeah. so sad. Like, this is what this war has brought. This is what the Magisterium stands for and the pain they create. It's not just one huge devastation. It's how a world reacts to the devastation. Yeah, especially because they were trying to do it to a bunch of them. And it's like, this is what the authority wants for everyone, right? And yes. Like, for everyone to be like the adults who have had their souls taken away, or, like, the children, right, uh, at Bolvangar, right, who have had their demons cut away. But at the same time, like, on the flip side of all that, yes, this is exact. this is part of why 
Azrael's kind of set up as this heroic figure, mm-hmm. fighting against all that. But turns out the price wasn't just one child losing his life and losing his demon, right? It wasn't just yeah. Roger. It was this entire world as well. I mean, they kind of started it and opened the door for all of that for themselves, but there's even yeah. more devastation brought on them. Like, I don't know how they're going to recover from that. Like, the end of the book, they say, yeah, we're going to try and do that with all these windows and, like, we'll try and take care of it as angels, but, like, how far do they really get with that? Yeah. And, yeah, it, it's, it's like, very on the nose. It's very meta-commentary. It's obviously, like, there's a lot of good, uh, good war stuff in here, right? It's very, uh, very much so good war stuff. Not good, necessarily. Like, but well, well written. <laughs> well written, yeah. Yeah. Well explored, especially in a fantasy environment. For sure. There's a ton of foreshadowing about Lee's death in this chapter. Yeah, I was surprised. It's very painful in that second chapter. Not only that, but also just the way it's framed, the journey, the understanding, the lessons that are getting learned. Uh, the most obvious, of course, is that line we highlighted earlier from Ruta Scotti. She delighted in the in being of the same substance as them, and in knowing that when she died, her flesh would nourish other lives as they had nourished her. Honestly, a great line, Ruta Scotti. She's got a lot of thoughts. <laughs> she's real. She's real optimistic here. I, I find it interesting that she thinks that this is what's going to happen to her when she dies. Considering we learned that this doesn't actually happen for everyone until Lyra and Will like go into the underworld and they're like, "We did it." Yeah. Everyone can go do this now. But coming back to Lee for a second, we see that, as you're saying, like, through Lee, he's the prime example. But also, like, we, you, there's this whole conundrum, right, that he has with the scrailing, dying for his cause and being, like, all jazzed out, making himself a martyr. And Lee doesn't think that the scrailing's cause is worth it. He's like, I don't get it. This guy, like, fucking wanted to die for this. And it starts setting up that that's actually what's what the cards hold for Lee as well, right? He's going to die for a cause, for someone that he loves and cares about, so it's much more grounded. He wasn't itching to die, but that he didn't want to die necessarily, but he made that choice anyway. It, it makes it more meaningful, contrasted with the scrailing. Yeah, absolutely. It's This whole entire chapter is like very much so this framing around the scrailing for Lee, with that man, but also this framing for Lee, like Serafina discovering this world of suffering and like that they don't have a choice. These people have no choice. It's framed with Serafina and that line uh, that, what was it, that Grumman should have accepted the witch's love that the oh, yeah. seal hunter says. Accepting a witch's love in this represents Serafina giving him the flower later and him accepting that flower. And of course, another witch queen mentioning the consumption of flesh as planet nourishment. It's just very well done with Lee finally choosing a side in the end, whether fate was going to choose it for him or not. Yeah. And and it's like, what? That was one of the lines, right? From the trailers for his dark materials, like, it's time to choose a side or something like that. Yeah. And that's what Lee does. But Lee doesn't choose one side of the war. What he chooses is the people that he loves. He chooses Lyra. I think that's Lyra. what makes it very poignant. Um, but yeah, regarding Lyra, the framing of the war, and with Serafina and Witch's Love, I, you know, there's a lot more detail there. And I, I personally think I think Grumman didn't do it. 
No, I agree with that. I do think I- I've come to that. Uh, I don't I've think that these men would gossip about it. Yeah, if he had tur- if he hadn't turned actually turned her down, it's like a Ned Stark Ashara Dane thing for me, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finally, coming back to you know this broken world and those thoughts about the Tower of Babel uh, stuff in Chittagaze, um for our, for the discussion since we couldn't be like it, it's the subtle knife, everyone. Even though everyone knows it's a fucking <laughs> subtle knife, even though right. everyone knows it's fucking John Perry. Yeah. So the authority slash God figure like isn't the one punishing Chittagaze, just you know the universe and for their greed and hunger for things from other places and not growth but whatever but in a way it like kind of works um how it's all playing out in keeping with that idea of like the hubris of man challenging the gods in a way because like what came about in that tower right it's the subtle knife and the nickname for it is god killer that's what the cliff gas call it what it, it, it had a word isa hater However the fuck it's pronounced. Yeah, there's a lot more that I'm really... I don't know if it's just, like, understanding or thinking about this round when it comes to Chitigaze. And I think... I think the first time I read this book, Subtle Knife felt like a very, like, second book, right? Like, just like, oh, that was the second book, now here's the finale. And now I'm reading it, and I'm like, oh, God, this is a gold mine. Like, there's so much good stuff in here, and it all does really tie into Amber so well. Yeah, absolutely. And... Uh, there's so much that's being like foreshadowed for the for Amber Spyglass in the end of the book that we're seeing here that brings it all yeah. together. Well, I'm not going to do a dusty discussion today, uh, and I'm really not going to spoil anything too much out of the outer books today. I think we uh, I think we've exhausted the Amber Spyglass enough with this because there's just so much to think on here. But I do want to say, I'm just saying, I really think we're going to see Will on the very last dust book. I bet it's going to be in the spirit world. You guys mark my fucking words. Interesting. I mean, like, we kind of got hints at it, like, with Zephania. Yeah. Saying. Yes, that's... Uh, you guys just got to imagine. Someday you'll listen to the entire Secret Commonwealth discussion, and maybe you Maybe will, I uh, will. Someday Because I talk about I that. It could happen. Yeah, it has something to do with some alethiometer reading, so... You'll mm. catch up. Alright. Read the book. It's very good. Eventually. <laughs> well guys if you have listened thus far thank you for listening through our discussion and of course the main episode for chapters 5 and 6 of Subtle Knife His Dark Materials Airmail Paper and Lighted Flyers and of course keep up with us and whenever those episodes come out by following us on social media you can find us at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter C-A-N-O-N or at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com and make sure that you check us out over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon if you're able to. Uh, we do put out episodes every other month about His Dark Materials or other pop culture things, and every other other month about A Song of Ice and Fire. $5 and up gets you access to special patron-only episodes. You can find us on many other podcast platforms. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Google Play, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and of course Podbean, where these are all hosted. <laughs> yes, as always, I've been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Thanks, guys. <laughs>